Welcome to The Page, the podcast that looks at literature from both sides of the page. I'm Mark Maynard. And I'm Karen Wickander, and we're the hosts of the new podcast presented by the University of Nevada Libraries and the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame. Today, we're talking about our bookshelves, what's on them, how we organize them, and why it's so hard to part with anything on them, no matter how much dust they're collecting. Chapter 1, Characters. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us on our first episode of The Page, the podcast that looks at literature from both sides of the page. My name's Mark Maynard, and I am a writer here in Reno, Nevada. And my background um, is that my dad was a consummate storyteller. And uh, I, I learned a lot of my love of stories and my love of telling stories from him. Uh, my mom was an avid reader and kept our house full of books. I grew up surrounded by books, bookcases, uh, piles of them all around the house. And um, that transferred into my early love of libraries. I remember Mrs. Usinger, the librarian up at the Incline Village Public Library, who showed me all kinds of, of different worlds through books. Currently, I teach creative writing at Truckee Meadows Community College. I was the winner of the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame Silver Pen Award in 2015, and my collected short stories called Grind, set in Reno, was the Nevada Reads book of 2016 and 17. I'm also the chair of the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame Selection Committee and work as a creative projects coordinator for the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame. And here in the studio with me today is my good friend and co-host, Karen Wickander. Karen and I have known each other since middle school, and we've done several creative collaborations together, including a multimedia studio for our students at TMCC and the launch of a literary crawl here in Reno, Nevada. Hi, Karen. Hey, Mark. So tell everybody a little bit about you. So like you, the... Um love of books and reading came from my family. Um, my mom's side of the family always had books. My mom was a reader, is a reader. Um, but I think, the, I think it's actually possibly written into my DNA. Um, my dad was reading all of the time, and he always passed on books. But I would say the DNA part, my uncle was an editor uh, in, in Berkeley. And then my grandfather was a frustrated poet. So he worked as a bookkeeper for the railroads in California, but he was also a um, California published poet. And um, they, like you would go into my Uncle Carl's house and it was like wall-to-wall bookshelves, books on the floor, <laughs> books everywhere. There was, it was just book chaos. It was like the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And then um, I had read, I've read books for as long as I can remember. And my dad, when I was in the second grade, gave me The Hobbit. And that was transformative because I had been reading, I feel like kids literature, it's so much about animals. And it's, you know, it's, it, but also tragic, like where the red fern grows, Old Yeller, all of that. And then um, my dad gave me The Hobbit. And I'd been reading like Nancy Drew and stuff like that. 
And I remember when it got to the part where Keely and Feely died. Spoiler alert. Spo- yeah, for a book that's... Uh, still, you should do that. Spoiler Spoil- alert. Okay, spoiler alert um, for a movie that's come out in books. But anyway, I was devastated because I didn't know you could actually kill people in books. I thought you could only kill animals. And uh, it was it was just this moment where I was like, books are so much more than I possibly could have imagined. So... Um, it kind of didn't matter. I changed my major five times in undergrad, but I always gravitated back towards books. And then I went to the University of Birmingham in England and studied the history of the book. And then I followed that up at the University of Virginia, where I did my doctorate in um, American literature and the history of the book. So it's just been kind of like wrapped into who I am. So just to be clear, were you okay with the killing of animals? It was just when <laughs> no. it became people no. that that was difficult for you. No. In fact, the, where the red fern grows was read aloud in class in the second grade in Mrs. Bannister's class. And I sat in the back and sobbed and got made fun of. So no, I wasn't okay with it. I just didn't think it was legal to kill people in books. I thought you could only like get away with killing animals. If for the record, I was not in that class. No, so you weren't. You didn't make fun of, of me. No. making fun of you. <laughs> not yet. So the um, the idea behind this podcast is that um, Karen and I are going to approach literature from two different perspectives. And I will approach um, a lot of our discussions from the perspective of somebody that is a writer, uh, primarily a fiction writer, and that teaches creative writing. So a lot of my orientation and take uh, for the last couple of decades has been reading um for craft. And and not that that is not a pleasurable way to read, but it's a different way of reading. And um, Karen approaches this as a lover of literature and a reader. And so the idea is that these episodes will be conversations with both a writer's perspective and a reader's perspective. And um, hopefully that will, will be interesting and enlightening as we go forward. Hi, I'm Mike Branch, 2017 winner of the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame Silver Pen Award and author of Rants from the Hill and How to Cuss in Western. You are listening to The Page Podcast. Chapter 2. Full Disclosure. So Karen, I know that you moved recently. Yes. And moving can always be a stressful thing. But um, for you, a big part of your move was packing up a lot of books Mm -hmm. in a lot of boxes Mm -hmm. and then moving them. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, it makes you take notice of your books, your patterns of book collecting and reading and things like that. So what were some things that you discovered as you were packing up all of your books? What are what are some of your favorite sections in your library? And what's your approach to uh, collecting and displaying books? Yeah, it's interesting, especially um, because I was in terms of space downsizing. So I had to figure out which books wouldn't necessarily make it in this first round, not to give away, but ended up in storage. And then, so it was also this question of um, not necessarily killing your darlings, but which ones are actually going to make it to uh, your new bookshelves. And so I think one of the things I realized is that what I've got is a collection that's fairly eclectic, which I'm fine with, um, though it also highlights where I have gaps in terms of global literature. Um, I have a lot, a lot of American and British literature. So was that 
intuitive? In other words, did you go book by book yeah. and, and sort of in your mind say, yes. this is a keeper, this is storage? <gasps> yes. So it's, yes. there's there's no yeah. sort of organizing principle and I'm going to keep all of my American and Brit lit books and put those other ones in storage. It's literally book by book. It was book by book and it was very much which ones do I love so much I can't be parted from them. Which ones will I need potentially to teach classes Um which means like some theory books ended up with me that I'm not necessarily going to retire with. Um, and then kind of the I do have specific collections, which I kept track of. So I have um, a lot of Wharton, Edith Wharton books because um, I wrote my dissertation on her. And then um, those go in a special bookshelf. And then I have a lot of Faulkner books, um, which I hand carried myself up to the new place because I didn't want anyone to touch them. And then those go in special bookshelves. Um, and then I have a King Arthur collection, which was inspired by Dr. Phil Boardman, who was a professor, an English professor at UNR, whose collection is staggering, probably one of the best in the world. So mine's nowhere near his. But I have a King Arthur collection. Um, when my dad passed away, I inherited all of his sci-fi books. And he had a lot because he read a lot of sci-fi books in Vietnam. And so I inherited that collection. So those are kind of marked aside. And then um, there's you know specific ones like I'm very lucky I have a first edition Lewis Carroll Hunting of the Snark also got hand carried. So there's certain things that it was like, I know I'm keeping these, um, but there was no, I didn't feel that pressure of, well, are you ever going to read it again? There's just some books that it's like, no, this has to, this has to go with me. So yeah, I think what it did show me was number one, my two read lit book list is way too long because I started a box that was like summer reads. There's about four of those boxes now. Yeah. Yeah. My, so that... my summer reads stack is is usually on my bedside table, my bedside bookcase, yeah. sometimes the floor, yeah. and I never get yeah. halfway through the stack. No, it's totally delusional, but awesome. Still makes me happy. So those, um, you said your dad read a lot of sci-fi books yeah. in Vietnam and, and you have some of those books. Do you have the actual books that he took with him and then did he yeah. bring them back? Yeah. So they've they've been halfway around the yeah. world and to Vietnam and back. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I was thinking about some of the books that I've had for quite a long time, not only my dad's books, but I've lived overseas multiple times, lived in Virginia for a long time. I mean, some of my books have been all over too. It's that, yeah, I love them probably almost as much as some of the people in my life. Well, and and full disclosure, um, I I helped you move some of yes. your books this time around. Yes. And in these, uh, let me just tell you, Karen does not collect pocket paperbacks. <laughs> uh, as you can imagine, King Arthur books and first editions and things like that are um, are heavy and and uh, you know. Richly bound yes, and, and smell of leather. and That was a quote I was going to use later. I, You've ruined it. I took it. He <laughs> <laughs> so. snaked it. Mark? Yeah, it, no, I'm a terrible friend and you're a good friend. But no, yeah, they, are, they I mean, were that's heavy. That's true, but the, that's not the, the point of the discussion right now. No, the movers did not enjoy me very much at all, <laughs> especially with stairs. Um, so, Mark. What types of books do you collect the most now that I've walked through my collection? And um, what I'm most interested in is what do you think that says about you as a reader? You know, it's it's interesting because you were talking about your theory books mm -hmm. and, um, and that you 
teach sometimes from theory books. And, and like you said, those aren't going to be what you're going to retire with or, or part of your collection. And yet we hang on to those. Yeah, yeah. And, and we sort of say, well, I taught that this semester. And you would think as as teachers and, and learners that we would be able to read a book and teach out of a book 10 or 12 times, and we might not need the book so much, but we always kind of go back to totally. the book. It's almost, uh, I think, when you're teaching from books, they become a, a touchstone. They become sort of a, a comfort item. You probably understand and know that material, but you just like to have that book. And I think sometimes books give you um, an ethos when you get that Yep. imposter syndrome yep. that can yep. happen with teaching where you can tell students, but look, it's on. I do actually know what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> it's on page 430. Yes. I will scan this page for you so exactly. that you see that yes. I know what I'm talking about. Don't take it yes. from me. Yes. Take it. Um, and so um, I, I do collect books. I love to collect first editions of favorite authors. Um, fairly eclectic as well. I, I like crime fiction, so I have some first editions of, of Elmore Leonard, who's one of my favorite crime writers. Um, I, I love um, humor writers. Uh, Ed, Ed Abbey's uh, Monkey Wrench Gang is one of my favorite novels. I have the, the uh, R. Crumb illustrated version, first edition of that one. Um, and it, it, my favorite novel is Joseph Heller's Catch-22, and I don't have a first edition of that one, but I do have its um, sequel that's not nearly as good, Closing Time, um, that's that's signed by the author. So I do have those sort of sentimental and, and meaningful collections. But I was looking through my shelves as we were talking about this and, and thinking about this, and I have a huge selection of books on the craft of writing, mm -hmm. a lot of which I teach out of and kind of rotate. And looking at all these craft books, I realized that they are a lot like uh, diet books. And okay. the, the, um, there, there are endless combinations of ways that other people who have succeeded are telling people how to meet a a particular goal. So a lot of diet books are, are fabulously looking skinny fit people on the cover. And, um, you know, they're going to tell you how to get to where they are. And that's how a lot of craft books are. And both diet books and craft books depend on a really strong belief in a sort of magic mm -hmm. that you can do a very few things and be wildly successful in dieting that you can lose weight by eating all the delicious foods that you want and not exercising if you just know that one secret, that one combination, cut out these carbs or do that, uh, you know, eat at these hours or have 11 small meals during the day or whatever. And um, a lot of writing craft books cover the same types of things. And there are a lot of things we're going to talk about in this podcast, the different elements of craft. And um, there is sort of this, I was realizing, there's sort of this magical belief that if you just know the right way to put words together, it'll happen. If, if it, like, it, there's some secret formula or key that can be unlocked. And I realized, even though I still use those for teaching, um, that writing is a lot like dieting or, or keeping fit or anything like that. It's it's really hard work, commitment, and consistency. It's just working at it again and again and again. It's not that you can't learn fundamentals and ways of doing things. That's important. Um, so I still have craft books scattered all over my house. 
uh, and probably will for years. But like you said, with your theory books and things like that, those aren't going to be, I think, the the keepers. Right. So um, do you keep do you keep craft books that aren't good, like to show students like this is terrible advice? I, I do, but then I never show them. Right, I, right. I think a lot of <laughs> collecting books is intentional. Mm-hmm. We don't um, – I mean, and we'll talk about this in a little bit too, but how many books do we have that we haven't read? We've yeah. been intending to read. We're yeah. going to get around to read those, but we can't part with them. We don't even know if they're good. Right. Um, and so I do think I have that with, with those craft books. And a lot of times too um, – I find that it just becomes a, a smorgasbord. If a craft book has one or two great ways of putting something to a student, and I think that's what it is. I, and I think the biggest challenge with writing at all is that our ideas are here in our head. Yeah. And it's so hard to get them onto paper the way that they are in our head. And sometimes somebody in a craft book has a turn of phrase or a, a metaphor um, that can help students figure out how to do that. And so those are those dog-eared pages. So I might have a 150-page craft book that has two good points of advice. And like you said, I could probably just photocopy those and keep them. But yeah. it, there's there's something about um, the having the book that that just is, is real and tangible. Yeah. So now that we know a little bit of, of what's on our shelves um, – what does that say about us as as readers? Yeah, I don't think there's an easy way to answer this question that has some like general magic wisdom. I think so much of it is dependent upon why you read, what you get out of reading. Um, it, it, it. I will say this. Okay, so this is interesting. So, anytime I teach something and mention that I think Stephen King is a good writer, because I do, I think he sold his soul to the devil and is one of the best writers. Like, the fact that you can fall in love with a character in the first page and then he kills him on page three and you're absolutely devastated. Like, he, he does something magic with words. And then I will always have people come up to me and say... Like oh I didn't know I didn't know you could think that I didn't know that like like it's illegal like like <laughs> oh but you can't have a PhD and like Stephen King so I think there's this really interesting elitism that comes with reading and it's the wrong way to read okay and so I I think I think so much of it is what's your reason for having books why are you know why are you reading are you doing it to collect? I mean, some of the stuff we'll talk about later, but but I but I think hopefully what people are doing is, is keeping the books that they love, that they have some kind of attachment to. So let me ask you this. Yep. We we both teach yep. and we've got offices. Yep. And and Karen and my offices are literally right, right next, next door, door. Yeah. to each other. Yep. Um and so we in and we share a, a coffee machine yeah. and, and we have coffees and then COVID has obviously cut into that, unfortunately. Uh, but we spend a lot of time in each other's offices. Yeah. And um, of course, students come to our offices and colleagues come to our offices. So you have bookcases in your office. I do. Have you curated what is on those shelves? Yeah, somewhat. Yeah. I mean, 
I've got comic books in there. Okay. I have books that I teach that I think I'm going to teach. I have all of my Norton editions in there of, of literature. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's like a split where I have like my serious bookshelves and then things that I love but I don't necessarily have to keep at home or things that I'll reference. I mean, part of what happens is when I teach... I have a tendency to talk about, like if we're talking about something from the 19th century, I'll still talk about its ramifications on books in, you know, contemporary to us. So I like to have that collection so I can bring in part things from different periods. But yeah, I definitely think I want my workspace to be as fun as possible because obviously pre-COVID, we were spending most of our time there. And so if I'm going to spend all my time there, I at least want it to be enjoyable. So I think about my office, and it's not just the books on my shelves. It's the art that I put on the walls. It's the Funko Pops that are spread everywhere. The toys. The, the toys. Chachkis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just very much a space I like to inhabit. And, and hopefully, too, I think it's really important for students to know, and I say this in class all the time, literature wasn't written to be taught in an English class. So if you're not carrying that passion for literature through, they're not going to become passionate about it. It just becomes the course becomes a hoop that they have to jump through to move on to finish their degree. And so one thing that I hope carries through in just the way that I structure my office is that this is something that I spend my life on. It's Mm -hmm. not just a class I'm teaching so that I have a job. It's it's something that I enjoy. Like we should be. We should love the books, even if we have to write a paper about it. Well, we don't love all books, but but at least it's part of that experience. That reading experience is the foremost experience. Then you start analyzing stuff. So I think that passion needs to come through. You know, uh, bookcases are are more than just book storage. They're furniture, and they become a they become a part of your household decorating and and things like that. Um, and so it's it's interesting to me. And especially with our identities as teachers, and I'm married. My wife Molly is also mm-hmm. an English professor, college English professor. So we have between the two of us quite a collection. She has a very different um, sensibility. She likes much more 19th century novels. Uh, I like more contemporary novels. We have a lot of overlap, and and we share a lot of books. And Karen, you and I share a lot of books, mm-hmm. and and um, pass them back and forth and things. Is there something, though, about us as as people and as lovers of literature? Do we project ourselves onto our bookcases sometimes? Do we, you know, the, the bookcase by the door oh, or yeah, where absolutely. people are going to see us? Oh, no, absolutely. So what do you want your books to say about you? What, what curational uh, touches do you have on your sort of public bookcases? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, especially given that I just moved. So if you were to sit in the living room, the books that I have there are Faulkner, Wharton, Folio Society, and then some of my like favorite signed books. So it's like those are, which I thought about that. I'm like, wow, you're such a dork. Like that is, that is clearly how I see myself. And I don't know. I, I think, I think again, it's kind of what I was saying earlier. I don't necessarily look at it as like a facade or that I'm it's a construct but it's truly like these are the things that give me life that sounds so stupid like it sounds so I don't know weird and 
silly, but I know that if I was like if I was going to have some kind of massive crisis and needed comfort, I'd probably grab Faulkner's Sound and the Fury or Wharton's Custom of the Country or, you know, uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Like these are books that it's not just what I'm presenting to the public. It's the things that I can look at and feel, I don't know, a sense of calm. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's steady. Those are there. Those are part of my life. Like I said at the beginning, these are things that feel like I feel like those books are in my blood at this point. They're in my DNA. It's interesting to me because during COVID, uh, when we were all on Zoom Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so the world was a narrow projection into our lives and it became a thing. There's even Twitter accounts out there that analyze the bookcases behind people. And it did become this very curational thing. What do I want to project? And and I even saw um, like Amazon was was selling shower curtains that looked like bookcases that you could could... set up on a curtain rod (laughs) behind you and look. So it's interesting to me because there's always a lot of talk about uh, publishing and and is publishing going away? Is is the love of books going away? And yet it's still such a big identity. And I don't think just for college professors and book lovers and, and things like that, but um, I think a lot of people in the public still books mm-hmm. as enjoyment and books as objects, I think, are still very important to people. I think that's absolutely true because some of when I worked for um, the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, it's just the Virginia Foundation now, but they have the largest book festival, like for a humanities council, they have the largest book festival in the country. And it's insanely popular and it goes over multiple days. And it's it's not just because it's in Charlottesville, like this is a public event and it sells out. They sell tickets to some of their events and they sell out months and months in advance. So the fact, I, I just, I think there... But that's what we've always done. Everything that happens, we're like, TV's going to kill the book, and then this is going to kill the book, and then this is like, that's never happened. Mm-hmm. People go back to books, they seek comfort from books. And even now, it was like the ebook is going to kill the books. And now people are in love with print books again, and um, especially for their eyes, because <laughs> it's so much better to read print and so much better for your brain. But I, I don't think that's actually ever going to go away. I think it's really interesting. I was thinking about this earlier, how um, people who stage their houses to sell them are often told not to put books up. And I think that's interesting. I know. I think that's the craziest thing, because if I walked into a house and there were no books there, I would be. Is it because you might have a a shelf of serial killer books and think people might worry there are people in your crawl space? It's some kind of aesthetic that it just like, it's that whole aesthetic of it looks better if it's like a piece of art or... Well, I mean, let's talk about that. I I do have a bookcase at home um, that my wife arranged Uh and it's all... Red books. Yeah, it is yeah. in our entry hall. Yeah. Um, it, it took me a little while to, to get used to it because they're, they were from different genres right. and different. Right. They're not alphabetized. Right. I'm very much uh, the, uh, of the traditional yeah. library. You're sort a librarian. Of, there should yeah. be sections. There should be. Yep. I would love to have a Dewey Decimal system yeah, in absolutely. our house. Um, but we, we don't currently have that. Right. Um, but um, we would love to know what's on our listeners' bookshelves. Mm. Um, what's the biggest section in your home library? How do you arrange them? Do you do them alphabetically by author? Do you do them by genre? Do you do them by color? Um, 
let us know about your home library and post a picture of your favorite shelves on our Facebook or Instagram pages. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Page Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Griffin, 2014 inductee to the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame and author of The Monastery of Stars. You're listening to The Page Podcast. So chapter three, the psychology of bookkeepers. So it's time to get a little philosophical now. Um, we can always go to the library. Yep. But we, you know, Amazon, mm-hmm. this, this mega online shopping empire started because people loved to buy books. Uh, we have a thriving independent bookstore here in town, Sundance Books and Music. Um, you know, independent bookstores are a huge part of civic culture in towns large and small. Why do we buy and keep books? Some that we read one time mm-hmm. and some that we may never read. What's what's the the drive behind collecting and buying books? Well, I think part of it is just the love of books. Mm-hmm. So especially like there are so many people who talk about how many books they've bought and they're like, I'm not going to buy any more books until I read the ones that I have. And then they buy more books. I'm not saying that's personal. But, yeah, that's me, too. Yeah, and um, me. So, so I think part of it is the love of books. And then also, I mean, it's, you know, to use, I guess, a tired reference, it's Proust's Madeline. Like, you read books at certain points in your life. They have got memories. Um, there, there are books in my dad's sci-fi collection I'm not even sure I'm going to read, but I'm not parting with those. There wasn't even a moment's hesitation because those were my dad's. And they, so they, to me, are my dad. Um, it's like something tangible for me. And, and so I think there's that. And then it's what I was saying earlier, too, that we go back to books that we love. Like I have multiple copies of books that I read as a child that I discovered at the Incline Library, didn't even know they existed, um, Incline Elementary School Library. Okay. And, um, <laughs> and which the librarian, whose name I cannot remember, actually gave them to me. So I, I got to take them home. But it was Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising series. And for almost my entire life, which is long at this point, I have read them again every year at Christmas, like during the winter, and um, just discovered that this is actually, because she's a British writer, not very well known in America, um, but this is actually something they do in England. A lot of people do this winter reread, and Robert McFarlane, the writer, um, he did like kind of a, like through Instagram, like a public reading, and they talked about it. So I think there's something about going back to these books that it doesn't matter to me that those books were written for elementary schoolers. They talk about King Arthur. It talks about the ship that was part of the Sutton Hoo burial. Like it is this thing that's magic. And I think you bring that magic back in the same way that you might rewatch Star Wars mm-hmm. or, you know, Indiana Jones. Again, I'm talking about me, but it, it has that, that, that power that comes from that, brings us back to a certain time, brings us comfort. Um, it They are magic. It's, you know, and, I think there's a there's an element of community mm-hmm. to collecting books as well. Um, if you collect other things, if you collect stamps or you collect right, coins, right. you you may have those things. Or people collect sports memorabilia. You may display some of those things, but they're um, they're sort of kept to accrue in value and maybe hand right. down or something right. like that. 
But but books are something you and I pass books back and forth yeah. all the time. Um, I have a stepson who comes over once a week, and I loan him a, a new book. And it can't just be any book. I have to curate them. Right. And, and right. I've gotten to know his aesthetic, and it's actually affected the way that I buy books. And oh, I'm not just saying that I'll only buy books that I know that he will like, mm-hmm. but now he's become part of a consideration right. of my my book buying. It's it's changed yeah. and expanded the way I kind of um, collect books. Um but I think it's that shared experience, too. Mm-hmm. You, you know, yep. you need to read this or here I'm going to hand it to you. Yep. And I think you and I both have some books that we wouldn't hand yes. to any yes. other living person. Yes. Um, and my stepson's really careful. It's it's kind of amazing. He won't dog ear or, right. or crack a spine right. on anything. So I can even – some of my hardcover and things I'd be, you know – not want to part with. And he'll tell me it was raining on campus today. And I had your book in my backpack, but I, you know, I wrapped it in a plastic bag because I didn't want it. So clearly that shows my obsession with books. Um, But it's, it's a a thing, I think that um, it's more than collecting. Mm -hmm. And I think the value is not the the material value of them. Right, I no. think, like you said, it's that magic. It's that nostalgia yeah. Yeah. of them. Yeah. It's it's funny because I think when people start collecting, too, like when you're younger, I do think you think in terms of, like, is this going to be worth money? And, like, right. you're not savvy enough to quite realize that, um, like, you can have a book from 1850 but I have a Folio Society limited edition William Faulkner Sound and the Fury where they printed it, um, the first, the Benji section, they printed it in different colors like Faulkner originally intended. Um, so I think uh, I, I think there is, there's something too, like it, I don't, I think that obviously that, but that feels more like a profession, like you're getting books just to collect them, to sell them at, or, or to make money off of them. And I don't think that's what, we're talking about here. I think we're talking about kind of that that love of the book. And I kudos to your stepson because I lent my brother a book of one of my. It was uh, Carter Carter Beats the Devil by Glenn David Gold and had these color plates. Um, he dropped it in a pool in Cabo. So um, yeah. So it's, I hope he didn't spill his drink. No, no, no. I'm sure his drink okay, was fine. Good. <laughs> so I think. Um, yeah, the books that we have on our shelves, there are definitely ones that I would never hand to someone or let them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you ever hit a book? I Like if someone's coming over? I, n- no, no. Now I really want to know what book you hid. <laughs> and did you hide it when I was coming over? No, no. maybe we'll save that for a different podcast. <laughs> I, please, please do uh, remember that, folks. And, and we can ask Karen about that later. Yeah. Epilogue. Until next time. Thank you for joining us today, and stay tuned for our writer's block writing prompt. In a couple of episodes, we'll share some of the results of your writing using the prompts on our Facebook and Instagram pages, and we may even read some selections uh, in the podcast. And join us again next month when we'll be talking about writing of place. And so, Karen, before we leave, um, let's give our listeners just a few uh, books that that you and I talked about that are books about books that that might be an interesting read. 
Okay, so we have Umberto Echoes, The Name of the Rose, which was one of your choices, and I heartily second that. Um, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, The Shadow of the Wind. Diane Setterfield, The Thirteenth Tale. Jasper Ford, The Ear Affair. A.S. Byatt's Possession. And one of my all-time favorites, Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. And I absolutely second the, uh, the Calvino recommendation as well. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on our first episode. Until next time, keep writing. And reading. And we'll see you next time on The Page. And look for us on Facebook and Instagram at The Page Podcast. And thanks to Robin Monteith at the University Libraries and our intrepid producer, Lucas Starmer, for making this episode happen. Thank you.